This morning, I want you to find a few places in your Bible. We'll be at several, several places. Uh, we'll be looking mainly at 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, but I'll be doing a little foray into Amos chapter 5 and Psalm 32. We ended the story last week in a place that, um, kind of dark, chapter 7, verse 2 says that Israel lamented after the Lord. They cried out to God, and for 20 years, God was silent, that their sin had created such a division, and their consistent, even as they're crying out to God, refusal to accept God's good law and good way, created a rift between them and God, and they cried out to him. It's interesting to note that, isn't it, that they're crying out to God, they're praying to God, and yet they're not repenting. I want you to notice the difference as we go through this text. They are not repentant. They are simply saying, God, where are you? God, why are you? God, uh, when will you? But they're not saying, God, have your way. There's a lack of repentance. There's any word we are perhaps more embarrassed of other than hell and judgment, things like that. It is this word, repentance. That we as a group of people are, are saying something to the world which nobody wants to hear, you're wrong. Nobody wants to hear that. And we're so embarrassed about this that, that this is not really a part of our conversation. This isn't a part of our attitude. It's not part of, of what we're declaring to them. Because, honestly, it's, it's, it's easier to sell books and sermons and uh, invite people to church if you know you're going to get your best life now and five ways to make your marriage better. And I really want you to have your best life, and I really want your marriages to be amazing. I really do. But I don't think any of that can happen unless the core of who we are as a people is our hunger for the glory of God and our willingness to pour out our lives and sacrifice to him so that he can then take that brokenness and make something magnificent out of it. Amos chapter 5, which is so uh, sort of like funny sad, um, that like 500 years after the situation that we're exploring here in 1 Samuel, we, we fast forward 500 years and Amos says to Israel, Seek the Lord and live. <laughs> the message is the same. It was the same with Samuel. It was the same with Amos. And it's the same thing today. If you want to live, if you want to live, seek the Lord. Amos chapter 5 verse 3 or verse 4. Seek me and live. Don't seek uh, in Bethel which is a city in Israel. Don't go and enter into Gilgal, which is another city. In other words, God is saying, don't go over here and don't go over here. Don't go listen to another preacher. Don't hop to another church or don't buy another book. Open the scriptures. Get on your knees. Seek me and live. Seek me and live. Lest I break out like a fire upon your house. And I devour it 
and it cannot be quenched. But they hate him who reproves at the gate. And they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Verse 10. They trample the poor and exact taxes and on and on we can go with the sins of Israel. They seek evil and not good. And yet God says, hate evil and love good. Jesus says a similar thing. He says, men love darkness because their deeds are evil. And the light will expose us for what what we are. The, the word here in Amos is the same word today. It was the same word in Jesus' day. And it's the same word in Samuel's day. Seek the Lord and live. And yet we're so embarrassed by this word of judgment that we back away from it. Or we try to defend ourselves. But the wise person, when viewing their soul, the wise person when viewing their life and viewing your thoughts and your heart and your weak, will stay silent beneath the judgment of God and say, yeah, I, I deserve all that. I do hate reproach. I hate reproach. Do you hate reproach? I didn't hear an amen, but I hate that. I hate when God says, you are so, so wrong. And you need to repent. And there is this wonderful graciousness about the word of God from, from, from Deuteronomy chapter 4 all the way to Revelation chapter 22 that says, if you will seek the Lord, you will live. We see that here in Samuel, Samuel chapter 7 verses 3 and 4. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So then the people put away their Baals and their Ashtoreths. They, they put away their foreign gods. It was sort of a husband-wife deity that was really popular at that time in that region of the world. Put them away and they served the Lord only. I want you to notice, and I'm going to belabor this point because I want to drill it into our minds and into our hearts, the conditional nature of everything that is said here. Samuel says, if you are turning to the Lord. You hear that? If, if. I hear this, this, this sort of, this phrase, perhaps you've heard this, unconditional love. Have you heard this? God has unconditional love. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is an incredible amount of conditions. Love is a tricky word. Love is a tricky word. I love God, I love my family, and I love naps. Not all the same kinds of love. Not all the same kind of intensity of love, we hope, right? There are priorities and there are loves. I love Christians, and I love non-Christians, but I don't love them the same or in the same kind of way. There is a sense in which we have got it into our minds that love kind of means, and I've heard Rob Bell said this. I was watching, uh, you might have heard of him. He's sort of a semi-famous progressive Christian uh, who said, so, uh, he was, it was an interview with Oprah. Maybe I showed it in Sunday school. I can't remember. Did I show this? I did, yeah, where she goes, tell me what God is like in one line, and he says, love. Love. 
And what he means by love is like everything's cool. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's fine. And yet, throughout the scriptures, from beginning to end, God is saying, no, everything is not okay. Everything is not fine. And I am trying to help you work that out if you are turning to the Lord. If you are coming back, if you understand your state and you say, I have sinned against God and I have sinned against you, my Father, treat me as your servant. Make me a slave in your house, for I don't deserve to be called your son. Samuel says, if. Now, God has demonstrated his faithfulness and his love to Israel. He, he, in fact, pulls them forward through the story of Scripture, through Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, giving them grace upon grace upon grace. In fact, he delivers them out of the hands of Egypt by showing and demonstrating his power in ten amazing plagues that just crush Egypt, the mightiest nation and army at that time. And then God brings them to, to Sinai, to his holy mountain. He says, look at all that I've done for you. Look at all of the power I have. Will you follow me? Then he brings them into the promised land, the land that we're, that's that all of this story that we're looking at. Samuel, he gives them the promised land. He, he defeats their enemies. He drives them out before him. He gives them all, sets it all up. And he says, do you see all that I've done for you? Now choose today, today, choose. Who will you serve? Who will you serve? Today is a day of picking, of choosing. If, then. Samuel says, if you are turning to God, then what should you do? Then you should fix your whole, and my translation here is heart. But this Hebrew word it actually has a kind of a cluster of meanings, and you can, you can choose them based upon the context. Sometimes it's translated as will, sometimes as mind, sometimes as heart. Incidentally, those three things which Jesus told us to love God with, Right? All three of these things. So all of the innerness of me, all of my will, all of my emotions, everything, fix it on God. Put away everything that is unclean. Put away everything that is foreign. Put away everything that doesn't belong. Fix yourself on God. Seek the Lord and live. That's a lot of condition, isn't it? It's conditional. Choose. Who will you serve? Who will you serve? And this is the nature of God's love. If we mean God is love, then what we mean by that is that there is a God who is perfect in power, perfect in beauty, perfect in holiness. He will never learn a new thing. He will never do a bad deed. Everything that he does is glorious and wonderful. And he has made you in his image and likeness. And yet you have consistently chosen to do what is evil. You've chosen to follow your own path and your own way, and God says to you, if you would seek me, I would give you life. The the New Testament gives us this word picture. If you think of a plane, like a, a flat surface, a flat map, and it says that our sins are removed as far as east is from west. They never touch. You are all the way over there still moving and your sin is all the way over there. So not only does God forgive, but God does that thing that we as humans find so hard. And you can amen if you're in marriage. Forget, right? Forgive 
and forget. God says, I don't, I don't remember your sins or your lawless deeds anymore. I've forgotten all about them. I won't, next time you do something wrong, I won't bring up yesterday or five minutes ago, depending on how bad you're being on that particular day. Psalm 32 is beautiful in this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. That word covered means to like take plaster and you spread plaster over it. It's the same word that we use for atonement. You cover over that sin. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his wrongs and whose spirit is no deceit. And David then speaks out of his own heart. This is the heart of repentance. I kept silent and my bones became dust. And I was groaning all day, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I recognized my sin, I I saw it, I felt it, I understood it, and my strength, it was dried up. Like I was sitting in the sun all day, not the nice beach sun, but the hot blazing. You were working in the field all day sun, and so what did I do? I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover over my iniquity. I didn't pretend like I wasn't a sinner in need of redemption because I stand under the just and righteous judgment of a just and righteous God. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and then praise God, this last line, and you forgave it. All of it. Gone. Repentance. This is what it looks like here in Samuel. And this is what it should look like in each and every one of our lives, possibly each and every day of our lives. He says, I will then give something special to you. I will defeat, I will drive the Philistines out before you. And I want to put a little caveat star on this line because I think it matters because there are false teachers out there who will tell you if you come to God, then he will give you your best life now, your better marriage, all these other things. And some of those things may come to pass, but oftentimes, as we'll continue to see in the story, things suddenly look a little bit bleaker. Temptation becomes a little more tempting because you're no longer giving into it all the time. Life becomes a little more difficult because now you have an enemy that is prowling about like a roaring lion and you are a threat to that enemy. Now your own flesh rebels against it as you beat your body into submission, saying, no, you will obey God's law, not your own passions. And so we need to be careful when we see texts like this and not misrepresent them or misuse them or or say that somehow that everything is going to be just fine. I remember the story of, of of being here is founded by a guy who died on a cross, Right? And who said, because this is the best way to mark it, if you would follow me, take up your cross. Not the best way to win followings. But this is the word of Jesus. If you would follow after Jesus, you must take up a cross and you must go after him. Following in his footsteps, laying yourself down, as it were, as the sacrifice. We no longer commit sacrifices. We no longer worship in temples and, 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 and kill animals and lay them down and, and burn them. We, we don't get off that easy. If you want a sacrifice to God, you're the sacrifice. You go on the altar. Your blood is poured out. Jesus says, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. 
I like that word, tribulation. I don't like the word trial or trouble. I feel like those are kind of smaller. I like tribulation. It's a good meaty word, like something really dark's on the horizon. Yeah. Something really big and, and, and bleak. Because whether you're here today and you believe in God, or you're here today and you don't, you, you don't believe in God at all, I guarantee in this life you will have tribulation. No matter who you are or what you believe, you will have tribulation. And the question that sits before you is, in that tribulation, will you go through it by yourself, on your own strength, your own motivation, your own power, or will you go through it with the one who says, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Repentance has specific characteristics. We see them laid out for us here by the people in 1 Samuel chapter five, 7, verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah, which was a city um, we've seen on the map. I probably should have had it up, but I didn't. Sorry. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew out water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on the day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people there at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the leader of the Philistines went up against Israel, and the people heard of it, and they were afraid. I want you to notice the characteristics that we see. We see real grief here, characteristics of repentance. We see real grief here in these people. I'm always troubled when people come to the front and, and either repenting because they've sort of wandered away from God or coming to God for the very first time and there are no tears. If you see God for what he is and you see yourself for how broken you are and if you can really look at your week and say, I have, I have done this and this and this and this and this and this and this against you, O Lord, and God says, I'm gonna pour my forgiveness out onto you, I, I, I worry when there's no emotion because we see the rending of hearts here. They pour out water. Now, we don't know exactly what this stands for, um, but I have a pretty good guess. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the, the Bible, sort of what they would have had in their heads and hearts and hands, uh, they would pour out blood. You weren't to drink the blood or eat the blood like everybody else around them. They would, they would use the blood um, in their food. But the Israelites were not to touch the blood because the blood is the life. And that was poured out to God, a drink offering, as it were, poured out to God. And here to me, this seems like what's happening. They're taking water and they pour it out. They're saying, God, we're giving you everything that we are. We're pouring ourselves out. And they fasted. Have you ever been so grief-stricken? Or, or, or something, the tribulation that I was just speaking about, is so it's not on the horizon, it sort of swallowed you up, and you just can't even eat. You ever been there? You just can't even eat. Their grief is so intense, their emotion is so intense, not only are they pouring the water out, not only are they gathering to worship, not only are they repenting, but they won't even eat. We don't want any food, we don't want any comfort. We are in grief. And then we see something else. Not only is it characterized by grief, but it's characterized by action. Putting away the idols, putting away the old man. That if we repent on Sunday, maybe Monday better be different. And if we repent on Monday, Tuesday better be different. And if we repent on Tuesday, Wednesday better be different. And our lives should take a growing process. It is so rare. 
But I really want to point out the third thing, which I think we lack, and I think we should recapture, and that is intercession. Do you see that there? The people call to Samuel. They say, Samuel, pray for us. Verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. And so Samuel takes the nursing lamb and offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cries out to the Lord God of Israel, and the Lord answers him, intercession. Now we get grief and we get action, and I know you've heard those sermons before, but intercession is something we just don't do a lot of. In fact, we do it very rarely at all. The intercession that we often do is the intercession for somebody sick. So we put them on the prayer list. Somebody's had a job situation or a job loss, so we put them on the prayer list. But we are the one strange people today, this morning, who have gathered together to say that what happens to this body is less important than what happens to this soul. And yet we're so busy about praying for our bodies and praying for our jobs, and we do so very little praying for our souls. James says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another. Now this doesn't mean you need to take the mic and let us know all your dirty thoughts. I'd rather not. But if you've been wrestling with a sin and failing and losing, and if you tell me that you haven't been, then you're lying to me and we've got something else to deal with. Because we're all wrestling with something. Confess your sins to one another. What does James say then? And pray for one another. Why? So that you can be healed. Because sickness is nothing compared to sin. We don't believe that anymore and it drives me crazy. We have to understand that what the scriptures are saying is that death is coming. Everyone's going to die. You're all going to get sick. You're all going to die. I'm sorry. It's just going to happen. You're breaking down right before my eyes. I see you all wrinkling out and going away. It's going to happen. But sin will damn you. Sin will send you away from the presence of God for all of eternity. Sin will destroy your life here and now faster than any sickness. Sin is death. So confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you can be healed in the way that matters most. 1 John 5.16 If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that is not leading to death, ask God and God will give him life. I love this line because we see each other committing sin and we say, man, did you see what she did? Did you hear what he said to me? Gossip about it, complain about it, argue about it. The Bible says pray about it. That's what you should be busy doing. We find conflict in our midst. You find yourself hurt. Start praying for that person right then and right now because if they've sinned against you, then they are in trouble and your passion and concern is for the lost, isn't it? The healing of your brothers and sisters, the healing of their soul, the healing of our relationships. Man, all fights begin, all church splits, all church fights begin with this. We accept sin and we let it fester and grow. Instead of praying and seeking healing with a passion. 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, I then urge you to supplicate, that is, God, please give me, we do that well, to pray, sort of the generic prayer, to offer thanksgivings, we do that pretty well too. God, thank you for this, thank you for that. But to offer up intercessions. 
My plea for you this morning among repentance and the other things we've talked about is please pray for one another about the things that matter most. And if there's a Christian in this room and you say, man, that person kind of has the Christian walk I, I want, and I, or you're a person in this room that you're struggling with sin, go and t- start talking to each other and sharing with each other if you, if you aren't already in the process of doing that. Finally, uh, what we see is how funny this story is, and I have a dark sense of humor, if you haven't guessed. And so, I really like it, I really love this. All of Israel has finally come, I mean, it's like 20 years, they've, they've lamented, but not repented. Finally, they come to a point where we are going to repent, and they gather as a whole people. They're gathered around at Mizpah, and they're praying to God, they're pouring out water, they're, they're, they're offering sacrifices, they're crying, they're fasting, they're praying, Samuel's interceding for them. You can imagine this great, great gathering, and the Philistines get the word, they say, man, there's a bunch of Israelites over at Mizpah, let's go kill them. Probably something like that. And so they gather up. And all, so you can imagine the, the, the armies of the Philistines are marching. The Israelites, whether or not they came prepared for battle is kind of, I mean, probably not. They're going to repent. They're going to pray. And so they've gathered around and they're praying and they're crying out and they're repenting to God. And somebody says, the Philistines are about to come and kill us. What? what? We're, God, we're repenting. Like, we're repenting. And it says that they were afraid, which I feel like is just like an understatement. Because if there's an army coming at me with swords, and all I've got are my like, shoes off, and I'm bowing before God, like, I'm, not, I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm messing myself. I'm terrified, right? I mean, this is just such a drastic understatement. And they say to Samuel, they're coming for us. We haven't beaten them in 20 years, and they're terrified. They say, Samuel, do something. Pray for us, because we've got nothing left hear that there comes a point where you say to god i can't do it anymore i need you and what happens next verse 10 samuel offers the burnt offering and the philistines draw near to attack and then the lord thunders with a mighty sound which i feel like is probably an understatement too i don't know what that sound would be but It was incredible and terrifying enough that it threw the Philistines into confusion and they were defeated before the Israelites. The Israelites didn't draw a sword. They didn't pull back a bow. They didn't gather together a war cry. God stepped in and he shook the ground and the the enemies of Israel Ran. It says next that the men of Israel said, look at them, they're running, let's chase them. And they chased them, it was my paraphrastic version, from Mizpah all the way towards the sea. They gathered back all of the territory that they lost over like 20 years. They gathered this land back. God wants to give us victory. God wants us to see, I saw a quote uh, this week, I liked it a lot, um, a scared world needs a brave church. Everyone around you is scared. They're scared about getting sick. <laughs> Just like you're scared about getting sick. They're scared about like, like double-digit uh, health uh, insurance hikes this coming year. They're scared about all the politicians. They're scared about 
war and, and another de- like depression, another like drop in them. Everyone is scared of the exact same things. They're no different than we are. The difference is supposed to happen is that the church is supposed to say, God's got this. I'm not afraid of this. And maybe there will be. Maybe everything will just go up in flames. Maybe that doom cloud's going to swallow us whole. God's still in control. If he can thunder and make Philistines run before you, what can't God do? Do you think you need a sword to defeat them? He's trying to prove to the Israelites, you never needed any of that. I can defeat anyone or anything. I can give you life. I can take it away. So seek me and live. So busy seeking other things. So busy pursuing other things. And you have this wonderful word from Scripture, repent. Stop it. Stop seeking other things. Stop worrying about other things. And instead, focus your whole self. Fix it on God. Man, there's a story that we like to tell and tell and tell and tell and tell again. I've read it, and, I, and I, I don't know how many sermons I've heard on it, the parable of the prodigal son. It's gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. You know the story, right? The boy says, Dad, your way stinks. I'd rather do my own thing. And all of God's teenagers said, Amen. <laughs> I'd rather do my own thing. I'd rather pursue my own path. I'd rather chase after the pleasures of life, I'd rather do that than stay with you. And the father says, I'll give you what you want. Go ahead. And the son goes, and he's a, he has a, a, a gay old time. Uh, and there comes a moment where he has nothing left, and he's going to eat pig slop. He's going to wrestle a pig so that he can get its dinner, which is gross because it's gross. But it's even more gross because of the way that they view pigs, right? I mean, they, they didn't eat pigs. They didn't touch pigs. The, the, a pig is a vile in the sight of an Israelite. You know, and so everything about it is just, is just gross. And he says, why am I living like this? Why am I pursuing these things? Why am I living in squalor and blackness? Why am I doing this? The slaves in my father's house have it better than this. I am going to go to him and say, treat me like a slave, not a son. I don't deserve to be called a son. I want you to see the condition there. Do you see that condition? That the son is going to come to the father, but he comes to the father without any conditions. He he comes to the father without saying, I'm not saying I need to keep this and this and this and this, or I need this and this and this from you, or or, this is what I want you to believe or think or do for me. He says, I have nothing. You have everything. And the story is that the father sees him a long way off, and he picks up his skirts, (laughs) and he runs. And covers the son with kisses. And the son says, pushes him back, like refuses the grace. Refuses the grace. Says, no, I am not fit to be called a a son. I'm not fit for any of this. Just make me me a slave in your house. Let me make the coffee in the morning. Like I I don't deserve anything. And the father says, you were dead and now you're alive. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
And all of that matters from us living in squalor and darkness to us moving forward toward life in repentance and saying to God, God, I hold nothing back. Absolutely everything is yours. And God's saying, finally, now let me give you life. And that is the promise. That is the grace. That is the way. That is the truth. That is the life. And if you don't know this way, truth, and life, I implore you in the name of the living God to come down front and speak to one of the elders and let us begin your journey toward the Father. And if you are wrestling with sin, if there's a sin you cannot break, there's a sin that has its hand on you, I invite you to come forward to and, or talk to me after. Anything that you say stays close as we pray for one another and seek the holy God that we might live. Let's stand and sing the song.